Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 12 through 19. So John 12, 12 through 19. Uh, for the past several Sundays, we've been meditating on the living hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've seen that this hope is variously described in terms of an imperishable inheritance, a heavenly kingdom, and a glorious reconciliation. But all this talk of kingdoms and glory can leave us a bit confused, maybe even a little bit disillusioned. When we see our king coming, not on a great stallion, but on a donkey's colt. How are we to reconcile the glorious promises of the kingdom with this humble portrait of our king? That's the question that gets put to us here on Palm Sunday. But as we come to listen to God's word, to understand these things, let's pray for God's help to do so. Would you pray with me? God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth, that we may embrace and ever hold fast and taught your will the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. John 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Kids, y'all can come up and join me. Yeah, there you go. Find a spot. Do you guys know what it's called when God gives you all the good things that you don't deserve? There's a word that we use sometimes for that. Henry? Blessings. Blessings. Yeah, pretty close to that. We call it grace. When you're given a good thing that you don't deserve, it's called grace. Now, it's a beautiful thing. People love the idea of grace from God, uh, of being forgiven, of uh, being blessed with a place in his kingdom, uh, of being with God forever. But people usually like a kind of grace that we could call cheap grace. Cheap grace, which is very, very different than the real grace that God gives. Now, in that passage that we just read, when Jesus came riding into town on a donkey, the people 
were expecting God's grace because they recognized that Jesus was God's king, that he was bringing God's kingdom, and they thought they knew what was going to happen next. They thought that he was bringing forgiveness of sins. They thought that the Romans who were in control of Jerusalem at the time, they thought the Romans were going to get kicked out and these people would have God's kingdom all to themselves. They, they thought that God was going to come and live with them again. In other words, they thought that Jesus was coming to give them God's grace. And it's true, he was. Just not the kind of grace that they were expecting. You see, they were, like so many of us, they were expecting cheap grace. Cheap grace is when you get your sins forgiven, but there aren't any consequences for your sins. Cheap grace would be God getting rid of those Romans and giving these people the kingdom, but, but without God requiring that they stop running away from him in their hearts. Cheap grace is God living with you, but you get to be king instead of him. But here's the thing. Jesus is not interested in giving people cheap grace because he knows that that would not be good for them and it wouldn't be good for you either. Now, the kind of grace that Jesus gives to his people is very, extremely costly. Jesus gives us the gift of forgiveness. That's true. But it's only because he paid for it with his own blood. He gives us a place in his kingdom. He gives us a home, but that's only because Jesus was killed outside of his own city. Jesus makes it so that we really can live with God, but that's because he was forsaken by God on that cross. To, to give God's grace to you, it cost Jesus everything. And as one pastor put it a long time ago, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Now, don't get me wrong. God's grace is definitely free to you. You don't have to pay anything for it. But we can't imagine that God's grace is cheap or easy. But if we do the hard thing, if we admit that we are sinners and we can't save ourselves, if we go to him, to Jesus, and ask for the gift that must be asked for, if we say we want him to be king and not us, then God promises that he will give us Jesus and with him forgiveness and a kingdom and a place with him. And since he gives all of this grace to you freely because Jesus paid the price, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We are looking at John's account of the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus' uh, arrival in Jerusalem the, the week before uh, Good Friday, before his crucifixion and before Easter and his resurrection on the first day 
of the week. And this image of, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, it, it is a familiar one if you've been in church very long because we return to it every year on Palm Sunday. But familiarity does not always entail understanding. As we see, the, the crowds rightly hailed Jesus as the coming king. But at the same time, they failed to grasp the significance of their king coming to them on the foal of a donkey. And I think we are susceptible to that same sort of misunderstanding. And therefore, this, this morning, I, I want us to look again at this familiar story. I, I want us first to look at the crowd's expectations. What is it that the crowd was expecting on that first Palm Sunday? Because I want us to see how their hopes are in many ways similar to our own. And then I want us to see Jesus' proclamation. He doesn't say anything in these verses, but he says a lot. Uh, he, he, is, he is teaching us something about himself. He, he's telling us something about what it means for him to be our king. And I want us to listen carefully to what he is saying to us this morning. So let's first look at the crowd's expectations. We, we see the crowd's expectations in a number of the details that John gives us here in the story. The, the first is the crowd's size. John says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to him. Now notice, the, the large crowd is not there to see Jesus, at least not at first. The, the large crowd is there because of the feast. They are on their way to Jerusalem for the, the feast. But when they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, they go out to see him. That Jesus' presence can move such a large crowd tells us that they believe he is someone important. That they, that they believe his, his presence is significant. Think about it. When, when I arrive at the airport, I'm lucky if my family comes to see me. But, but when the president or when a famous actor or when a famous athlete arrives at the airport, somehow word spreads like wildfire and great crowds come out to greet them. And so the crowds tell us that they thought Jesus was somebody. They, they thought Jesus was, was someone of significance, someone of importance. But, but who exactly did they think that Jesus was? Well, again, we, we have a clue in the second detail that I want you to notice. Notice their use of palm branches. Again, John says, when the crowd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now again, the, the exact origin of, of this practice is debated. We're, we're trying to sort of read back into history. Why, why would people do this? Why would people take palm branches and, and wave them in the air and, and place them upon the ground? At the very least, it's, a, it's an expression of joy and, and excitement. It's something like you know, the, the, the Pittsburgh uh, Steelers fans waving their terrible towels in the air. Right? They, are, they are excited. They're, they're, it's an expression of their, of their fervor. But there seems to be something more than that going on here. It's not merely an expression of excitement, but rather it's something like rolling out the red carpet. And not rolling out the red carpet for just anyone, but, but rolling out the red carpet for your king. Rolling out the red carpet for your, for your ruler. And we see that that's exactly what the people were doing in the way that they greet Jesus. John says that the crowds went out to meet Jesus. As they went out to meet him, they were saying, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, Hosanna is one of those words that you hear a lot this time of year, and you you probably know that it means something like to to save. It it could be a plea, or it could be an exclamation. It it could be someone saying, save us. Or or it could be someone saying, we are saved. But but either way, the, the emphasis is on salvation. Here, the crowds are clearly addressing Jesus as the one that they expect to deliver them from their bondage and Depression. They are greeting him as their Savior. And they are using the words of, of Psalm 118 to do it. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a reference to, to Psalm 118. And who is this one who's, who comes in the name of the Lord in Psalm 118? When you, when you read the psalm as a whole, it's clear that he is the one who comes to bring salvation to his people, deliver his people out of the, the trouble and the bondage that they, have, that they find themselves in. And so here the people are, are applying these words to Jesus. They see Jesus as the fulfillment of the psalm. They see Jesus as the one who was promised. It's why they say, even the king of Israel... You see, they see Jesus as David's greater son, the one long promise, the, 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 uh, the rod from the stump of Jesse who's going to finally bring salvation to the people of God. They see him as the coming king. And so we see that, that Jesus here thinks, that, or that the crowds here think, think that Jesus is the one who's finally going to do for them what God had promised so long ago. But of course, this leaves us with the question, why? Why do the people think that Jesus is the Savior? Why do they see see Jesus as the the coming King? Why do they see Him as the one who's finally going to do for them all that God had promised? Well, there's one more detail that that John gives us. We, We notice it in verses 17 and 18. Why do these crowds think that Jesus is the coming King? Why do they think that he is the one who's going to bring them salvation? Because of Lazarus. We're told that the crowd that had been there when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb had been talking about it. They had been bearing witness to it. And then we said the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. The crowds had had heard the story of Lazarus. They had heard the story of Jesus calling him out from the tomb. And they realize the significance of that event. Lazarus was the reason that they believed that that Jesus was the one who came in the name of the Lord. It's, It's not the only reason. No doubt Jesus' reputation as a powerful prophet had been building for some time. But Lazarus was the final clinching piece of evidence that the people needed. Lazarus finally allowed them to overcome their natural skepticism and and doubt, the the kind of skepticism that was fostered by hundreds of years of disappointment. Lazarus finally allowed them to believe. Now, again, don't misunderstand what that means. The crowds don't yet know that Jesus is God in human flesh. That, That probably wasn't even on their radar. But rather, it meant that they saw Jesus as one highly favored by God. One like Elijah or Elisha, both of whom had raised people from the dead during the reign of the kings. And so they saw Jesus as as one like them. One that, that could finally bring salvation to God's 
people. I mean, just, just remember the stories about Elijah and Elisha. Remember what Elijah had done to the armies that, that came against him. When the king's soldiers came to arrest him and bring him before the king, he called down fire from heaven. And the soldiers were consumed. Or, or remember what happened to uh, the, the armies of, of Syria when they came against Elisha. Uh, God sent his armies of, of fire to, to protect Elisha from their siege. And so if they had access to, to power from God like that, then surely Jesus could do something similar. Surely Jesus could deliver them from the powers of Rome. That's what the people were thinking. They, they'd seen him call Lazarus from the dead, and now they see him coming into Jerusalem, and they think, now at last is the time. They're, they're beginning to, to put the pieces together, and, and they're beginning to, to celebrate Jesus coming with, with joy and, and pomp because they think that he is the Savior that they had so long hoped for. But of course, this raises another question. What kind of Savior exactly were they hoping for? You've probably heard it said before that, that the people of, of Israel in Jesus' day were, were hoping for a a political savior. They were, they were looking for someone who could rescue them from Roman domination. They were, they were looking for someone who could restore political power to Israel, to reestablish the, the empires that had been under David and Solomon. And this is almost certainly what the crowds had in mind when they hailed Jesus as the one coming in the name of the Lord, as the king of Israel. And it's, it's easy for us to sort of uh, dismiss them and, and, and think, oh, you know, those, those poor blind Jews, they just didn't get it. They just didn't really understand Jesus. They, they didn't understand why he had, had come. But I think we need to ask ourselves, how much are we like them? I mean, just think about it. What type of Savior are you looking for this morning? kind of salvation does your heart long for? Maybe you find yourself in financial troubles just struggling to make ends meet week to week, and you long to be delivered from that financial insecurity. Maybe you're dealing with health issues. Maybe it's your own body breaking down. Maybe it's the, the health of, of someone you, you love, but you long to be free. From, from those bodily ailments. Maybe it's broken relationships that you long to be delivered from. Maybe your, your marriage is stressed. Maybe your relationship with a, a child, a young child or an adult child, has been fractured. Maybe it's not the, the breakdown of relationships, but just the absence of relationships. Maybe you're, maybe you're just lonely and, and you long to be uh, in a community where you are known and, and loved. Maybe it's a loss of dreams. Your life isn't what you had imagined. You aren't where you thought you'd be. And you're not sure what's next. And you're, you're, you're caught up in this sense of vanity, of chasing after the wind. Are these not the issues? Are these not the, the problems from which we want God to save us? Are these not the things from which we want him to Delivers. I, I think they are. 
And when we recognize the, the, the salvation that our hearts long for, we, we recognize that we're not too different from the crowds. We're not too different from the crowds that hailed Jesus as the King of the Jews on that first Palm Sunday. And because we are similar to those crowds, because we are like them in, in so many ways, we are open to the same sort of disillusionment. I know the crowds that were celebrating Jesus here on Palm Sunday are, are not exactly the same crowds that were calling for his crucifixion a week later. There's not a, a one-to-one correspondence between the people here and the, the people there, but there has to be significant overlap. I mean, after all, the, the people flocking to Jerusalem uh, for the feast who, who celebrate Jesus are the same people who are in Jerusalem when they call for his crucifixion. And so I think there is a, a significant overlap between the, the people here hailing Jesus as king on Palm Sunday and the crowd calling for his crucifixion on Friday. So what could make these people turn on Jesus so Quickly. Why, why do the, do, do their, uh, does their chant change from Hosanna, we are saved, to crucify him? Well, to put it simply, he didn't deliver. He, he didn't do what they thought he was going to do. He didn't bring the salvation that they were hoping for. The first thing that Jesus does upon arriving in Jerusalem is to enter the temple and to, to throw out those who were buying and selling. In other words, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he picks a fight with the wrong guy. He, he doesn't pick a fight with the Roman oppressors. He picks a fight with the Jewish Leaders, And then he spends the rest of the week sparring with them. It's what we see in, in each of the Gospels. Conflict after conflict after conflict, not with the Romans, but with the Jewish leaders. And this wasn't what the crowds were looking for. It wasn't what they were expecting. It wasn't how they thought their salvation was going to come. And so when he was finally betrayed and arrested by one of his own... It only seemed to confirm that he wasn't who they thought he was. He was just another pretender. And so they were disappointed. They were even mad. They, they said, go ahead and crucify him. What do we care? Maybe even go ahead and crucify him. He deserves it for getting our hopes up. But go ahead and crucify him because he's not who we thought he was. Such was their disillusionment. And you will feel that same sort of disappointment if you have the wrong idea about the salvation that Jesus offers or about the type of Savior that he came to be. Maybe you've already felt it. Maybe even this morning as you, as you sit here, you, 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 you think that Jesus hasn't proven to be the Savior you were hoping for. Your financial problems haven't resolved. Your, your health issues haven't disappeared. He didn't heal your loved one. He didn't restore your marriage. He didn't fix your kid. He didn't give you the position that you wanted. You're, you're disappointed, maybe even mad. You're not calling for his crucifixion, but, but you're certainly not ready to devote yourself to him. Maybe you're even ready to, to just simply walk away. But if that is where you are this morning, if you, if you had in mind a salvation that hasn't been delivered, 
And, and you're wrestling with disillusionment, you're wrestling with disappointment, you're, you're wrestling with, with, with doubts about who Jesus is and what kind of Savior he, he really can claim to be. If that is where you are this morning, then you desperately need to see what Jesus is teaching about himself here on Palm Sunday. Look with me again at verse 14. John writes, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. We know from the other Gospels that that he actually went to great lengths to orchestrate this scene. Jesus intentionally, purposely rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. As I said, it's a a familiar image because we return to it every year, but, but its significance is not immediately obvious. And It wasn't actually immediately obvious to the crowds that day either. It wasn't even obvious to his disciples. We're we're told in verse 16 that his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, only after his resurrection, when they thought back on these things, did they begin to understand that these things had been written about him and, and what they meant. But what is it that they remember? They remember that these things had been written about him. Where? In the prophet Zechariah, John tells us in in verse 15, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. That's what they remembered. That that Jesus had done this intentionally in the fulfillment of what had been prophesied by Zechariah. As we heard even in our call to worship this, this morning, Zechariah says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And the first thing that I, that I want you to see in, in Zechariah 9, it, it, this prophecy that Jesus is so intentionally fulfilling, I want you to see that, that Jesus is, in some sense, affirming that the people's claim. He is affirming that, yes, I am the king. That's what Zechariah 9 is all about. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. And he comes bringing salvation. So, so in some sense, the, the crowd is right. Jesus is affirming their expectation. He is the long-awaited Savior. But notice the rest of verse 19. That, that, that part about being mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a strange image. It was a strange image in, in Jesus' day, and it's a strange image for us today. It's something like the President of the United States coming in and it'll beat up pickup truck rather than a, a bulletproof Escalade. You know, it's, it's not what we expect. Here is the king coming not on a stallion, not on a horse dressed for war, but here comes the king on a donkey. It's a strange image, and it's, and it's actually, uh, that, that strangeness is actually enhanced by what Zechariah says, because there in, in Zechariah, he uses all kinds of war language. Notice what he says. He says, he says I will cut off. I'm going to cut off the stallions. I'm going to cut off the chariots. I'm going to cut off the, the battle bows. This is the language of, of military victory. The king is going to utterly and, and completely disarm the enemies of God, and by doing so, he's going to bring everlasting peace to his people. But how is he going to do this humble and riding on a donkey? You see, it is that strange juxtaposition of of images. The the victorious king riding on a humble donkey. It is that that strange juxtaposition of of images that, that prepares us to understand the significance of what Jesus is really doing. It prepares us to make sense of the strange way 
that Jesus is going to defeat and disarm his enemies. We know the story. We, we know what's going to happen. Within the week, Jesus will be betrayed. He'll be arrested. He'll be beaten. He'll be condemned. He'll be crucified. And he will be buried. Doesn't look much like victory. Even as the circumstances of our life don't often look like salvation. But remember what Paul would say later about Jesus. We, we heard it this morning in our assurance of, of pardon from Colossians chapter 2. What does Paul say? He says that Christ has disarmed. There's that same language. Christ has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he has put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in him, in his cross. Jesus disarms our enemies through the cross. It is in and through his crucifixion that Jesus defeats his enemies. Again, it doesn't make sense, but, but we remember what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the, the sting of death is sin. It's because of sin that death is the beginning of eternal punishment. But why does sin have the, the power to, to render this condemnation? Paul tells us the power of sin is the law. It is, it is because of God's law, it is because God has said that the punishment of sin is death, that, the law, that, that sin has the power to condemn. So, so the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. These are the weapons of the enemy. They use sin and, and death to, to, to imprison us. They use sin and death to keep us under fear, uh, to, to destroy us. These are the weapons with which they, they subdue and destroy these are the weapons that they used to, to keep us from God's blessing. But Jesus has to use the language of Zechariah 9. Jesus has cut off the chariot and the war horse. He has broken the battle bow. He has disarmed our enemies. He has taken away their weapons. How? Through the cross. In the cross, Jesus has dealt with sin. In the cross, Jesus has, has taken the penalty of our sin upon himself. As Sam was saying to the children, God's grace is not cheap. It is, it is infinitely costly. But he has paid that cost. Jesus has paid that cost. He has given his life as the ransom for many. In him, the demands of the law have been satisfied. It's why we will sing at the end of our, our, our service this morning, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is justice smiles and asks no more. This is the reality of, of Palm Sunday. This is the reality of why Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He comes as our Savior. But He comes not to, to kill our enemies, but to be killed by them. He comes not to judge, but to be judged. He, he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as the ransom for many. This isn't the salvation that our hearts naturally long for. We think we'd rather have our best life now. 
It certainly isn't the salvation that the Pharisees were looking for. Notice in verse 19, they, they are beyond frustrated. But this is the salvation we need. God could give you health and wealth and happiness now. But if these were only for this life, it would be a cruel gift. It would be a, a cruel gift because it would, it would divert us from our true need. God isn't willing to give his children the fleeting pleasures and, and treasures of this age if those pleasures and treasures would blind them to their true need. God allows us to experience something of the, of the pain of our sins so that we might recognize the reality of those sins. It is better for us to, to experience something of the brokenness of this world than it is to, to experience comfort here and now and to perish forever. You see, God has something far better for us. He, he has for us an indestructible, undefiled, unfading inheritance in his coming kingdom. But apart from Christ, apart from his death upon the cross, we are disqualified from that inheritance. Apart from Christ, we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord because our hands are not clean. But that's why Jesus came. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. That's why he comes humble, riding on a donkey. Because he comes to give his life as the ransom for many. He came not to give us our best life now. Not to give us the salvation we think we want. He came to deal with our sin once and for all by the sacrifice of his own life that we might have new life in and through him both now and in all eternity. Jesus will not save you from the troubles of this life. If that's what you expect, if that's what you hope for, you will be disillusioned, even as the crowds were disillusioned shortly after that first Palm Sunday. But because Jesus has disarmed our enemies, because he has conquered sin and death, we know that whatever troubles we pass through in this life, they will be but slight and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in him. Even as we sung this morning, when we pass through the floods, they will not overwhelm. When we pass through the fires, they will, we will not be burned because he has given himself for us. In him, we will land safely on Canaan's side. That is the great promise of Palm Sunday. You see, we've, we've been talking about all that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been talking about the, the kingdom and the, and the glory and the reconciliation, and, and all of that is true. We, we have to understand that our salvation is more than just the forgiveness of our sins. But we have to understand that there is no salvation without the forgiveness of our sins. God intends to do more than forgive us. He, he intends to, to make us citizens in his kingdom. But to be qualified for that, we must be cleansed. To be qualified for that, our sins must be dealt with. And that's why Jesus comes to die. You see, we can't, we can't draw this line in the gospel between is the gospel about kingdom or is the gospel about forgiveness? It's both. We are forgiven that we might be qualified for an inheritance in the kingdom. But without that forgiveness, 
we will not inherit anything. Without that forgiveness, we remain estranged from God. We remain far from Him. We, we remain even His enemies, justly condemned. And that's why Jesus rides as our conquering King on a donkey. He comes to qualify His people for an inheritance in His kingdom. And because He does, because He humbles Himself to the point of death on a cross, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the, the gift of Your Son who comes that, that in Him and through Him we might have redemption, the forgiveness of his sin, our sins. That in Him, Father, we might be qualified for an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. Father God, allow us to see and to believe and to, to rest in this gospel today and every day until you come again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.